Hebrews chapter 11, page 1874 in the Bench Bibles, where we'll read the verses 1 through 6 as follows. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith he still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. These very words of God, and in connection with this scripture, the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 7, page 14, in the backs of the Blue Psalter hymnals, if you wish to follow the reading. Lord's Day 7, page 14, back of the blue book, question and answer 21. Question 21 asks, what is true faith? The answer is, true faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true. It is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too, have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. This is the teaching of the confession. One of the uh, activities that I would just love would be if churches had morning worship, where the pastor preached on a text of his choice in light of the needs of the church, and then adult Sunday school, besides children's Sunday school, where a lot of the adults came. <laughs> a few years ago, they asked me to teach a class at Redeemer United Reformed. I jumped on it because that's right down my alley. But not many people came to adult Sunday school, and that's the way it is in many churches, and I regret that because it's at adult Sunday school we can ask our hard questions, some of which are hard to deal with in a sermon. But any, at any rate, that penchant in me I just told you about is going to lead to the sermon proceeding the way it does tonight. I'd like to start with the first point that we have faith and need true Christian faith. That'll take only a minute. And then second, go through Hebrews 11, 1 to 6, with maybe 
emphasis on verse 6. And then I'd like to bring you to the Reformation for the way they struggled with and dealt with Hebrews 11 and what they said, including the catechism. And then I'm going to ask some questions, up to 10 of them. Doubt we'll have time for all of them, but at least some. And these are the kind of questions you ask, at least if we're in Sunday school and dealing seriously with a subject like faith. Ask some questions and answer. So first, we already have plain faith, and also we need and can have true Christian faith. Now, I say that all of us have plain faith because of the way I would illustrate plain faith for children. I've done this with you before. Every single one of you had faith in the seat you're sitting in this evening because you sat in it. And if you didn't have faith in those seats, you wouldn't have sat in them. You have plain faith. Now, we also need and can have true Christian faith. If you want a simple way to come to faith, we believe in Jesus Christ the Lord. Jesus, Savior from sin, death, and hell to righteousness, life, and heaven. Jesus Christ, able one to be saved, like a doctor's able to practice medicine, a lawyer's able to practice law, an accountant's able to practice accounting, etc. Able one. Well, really, Christ means anointed one, but it comes down to able one in English. And then Lord, and that's always a hard thing in English. People will take a Savior, they'll take an able Savior, but to have Christ as Lord or ruler of their life tells the people of true faith from those of pretend faith. Lordship means Jesus' boss, we follow him. Matthew 7 says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I never knew you, because you did not follow me faithfully. So, that's how you come to true faith. Now, that much having been said, the second point I'd like to make is from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Let me take you through those verses in kind of an overview way. Verse 1 is very complex in the Greek, very hard to translate accurately, which is why you have so many translations. In the Greek language, very complex, as a couple of us were taught, the biblical Greek language. It's got simpler these days. But Hebrews 11, now this version says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain. Ugh, I want to groan at this translation. The original, and I think the King James is the best translation yet of this verse, it says, true faith is, and the King James has substance, and the Greek word means being, or that which is real, or that which is really real, or that which is not fake, not going to fool you. There is something in this universe that's substantial. It's for real. They were searching for it in Greek philosophy for hundreds of years, and the word they used for it, being, 
ousia, being, is the word used here. So faith, true Christian faith, has substance to it. That's what's being said here in verse 1. Substance to what we hope for. Now what we hope for is that there's a God who will help us and save us. And if you want to translate that as this version does with being sure of what we hope for, okay. I would rather say faith is the substance of things hoped for and then the evidence. Uh, the Greek word again for what this version translates as uh, certain is evidence. Um, there are facts, and those facts become evidence. The facts are that there is a God, and we who, in the depth of our beings, hope there's a God, and hope we'll get right with God, and hope there's a way to belong to God, and hope that there is life after life because we don't want to die. Those of us who believe in the being of a real God also see evidence that there is such a God. And again, this version says certain. Let me give you a little of that evidence. It's not just imagination. I'll tell you some things. For one thing, there is the second law of thermodynamics, that things in the universe decline in energy. And here we got people coming along and saying there's an exception, and that is um, the kind of evolution where things just get higher and higher and bigger and bigger and better and better, but everything else declines. They ought to look at that second law of thermodynamics. And there's language. That's what we were talking about earlier tonight. The Greek language I had to learn in Latin 2,000 years ago are very nuanced languages, complex languages, and there's decline and simplification in language. There's a certain downhill flow. And so we're going to say there's no God. We start with nothing, and it's an evolutionary process. Language isn't getting more sophisticated. It's getting less sophisticated. And then, yeah, the mathematic, mathematical science of probability. Um, man in an earlier church, I may have shown you this, gave me a big ball bearing. He called it, um, what did he call it? Some kind of egg. And he said, when this uh, ball bearing hatches, a dinosaur egg, when it hatches into a dinosaur, that's when I'll believe in uh, evolution from nothing to something. And that simple man was making a profound point. We ought to look at these things. Now, what people hope for is not that nothing becomes something, becomes an amoeba, becomes a person, so that you, all you are is glorified animals. What we hope for is much more than that. We hope that there's substance of some sort, the really real in this universe to give us hope. And then, based on that real and the hope, we also become convinced of that which we trust in. To put it in my simple analogy, these benches are really real. You can depend on them to sit on them. God is really real, and you can trust him. Now, I guess I'll go through these other verses a little more quickly. Verse 2, this is what the ancients were commended for. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was formed 
at God's command. And believe me, if there's a God, he can simply say, let there be as he did and there will be. Was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. God moved from invisible to visible. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. They argue whether it was Abel, the more godly person, or a better sacrifice, and that's not our point this evening. My inclination is to say both and, if I can't clearly distinguish. But then it goes on in verse 4, By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith he still speaks, even though he's dead. I'm going to share with you briefly one of the most moving experiences in my life. I was the pastor in Sully, Iowa for a number of years, seven years. Large church, so we also had a lot of funerals, a lot of deaths, and they had the town cemetery. And then some years after I was there, probably 10, we were invited back for a big 100th anniversary celebration. And the afternoon of the celebration, I had some free time, so I went walking in the cemetery. And I saw cemetery stones of many people, including some of the very incredible saints in that church. I, I just was, they ministered to their pastor by their saintliness, is what happened there. But I would walk through the cemetery and see these gravestones, and I was crying inside, if not outside, and just praising God for those saints now gone from this earth and in heaven, who, though dead, still speak. And that's what Abel does, too. And by the way, that's what you want to do, too, when your life is over. You want to be a saint who, when people see your gravestone marker, still speaks of the faith in God that you had. There's a worthy goal for your life. And then verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. Okay, one of only a few people who did not die. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And then verse 6, we turn to the negative. Without faith, meaning true Christian faith now, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him, and now notice something profound. It stands out in the Greek where they like to have what they call chiasms, something that's asserted and at the end of a paragraph reasserted. Because anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists. Well, that's back where we were in verse 1, right? He's substantial, the really real. Must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So, therefore, what you want to do is to... Please, God, because you are a person of Christian faith. And not only that, 
But you also want to be aware as a person of Christian faith what's added at the end of the thought here in verse 7. That you are to earnestly seek God. Now earnestly means, as you know, sincerely, diligently, repeatedly. Earnestly seek God because God exists and you as a person of faith are a God-pleaser, and you may go to God. That's the thought of these verses so far. Now, moving on from what these verses inform us to the third point, the Reformers really struggled hard to be able to explain faith in simple language so that people could understand what faith was and live it. What the reformers were working against was something called implicit faith, which we don't need to go in tonight. It was just that um, um, you didn't have to have faith yourself. There was a whole history of saints and so who had faith. You could buy um, a a lot of things. And furthermore, going to Mass, that uh, faith and the uh, church would be transferred to you. The reformers didn't like that. And so what the reformers did was come up with these definitions and descriptions of true Christian faith. I'm going to give you the common three words a minute and then take you to the catechism. The first of the three words the reformers came up with was knowledge. You must know enough about God to have faith in God. Not perfect knowledge of God, but a basic elementary knowledge of the true God, and you get that from the, Bible, from the Bible. Pay attention to what the Bible says about God. That's knowledge. Now, the second thing is assent. There's Latin words for all of these things. Assent means you agree to what you know about God from the Bible is, in fact, true. And then the third word, trust. And the Latin word behind the English trust is fiducia, like the fiduciary at a bank or something like that, a trustee of an institution. Now, if you think about it, and think about the devil and demons, they know a basic knowledge about God, probably more than most of us, They assent to the fact that God is God, but they do not trust God in the sense of trust and obey, and they do not, out of trust, follow God. And so that word trust becomes very, very central. If you say to me, what is faith in one word, I would answer back, trust in God. Now, The Heidelberg Catechism, a little bit to my surprise here, has in the translation in front of us a slightly different way of saying it than most of the Reformers. We're told that true faith is not only a knowledge, okay, that's the first word, and conviction, that really is that second word, persuaded, that everything God reveals in his word is true. That's fine. But also a deep-rooted assurance. 
created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel, etc., etc. I'm going to come back to that subject of assurance in just a minute with the questions, because more than a few people I've ministered to over the last 40 years struggle a bit with insurance, assurance. So here's where we are. We've noted that we need and can have true Christian faith, and we've heard talk about faith from Hebrews 11, and now I'd like to ask some questions that people ask and answer them, along with some applications. So here we go. Here's one question. How do I get saving faith? Now I answered that one. Believe in Jesus Christ the Lord. We'll move on. How does Jesus speak of true faith? This is very interesting. Different ways. <laughs> Jesus says several times, O you of little faith. And he's usually talking to Jews when he says that. And he also speaks to a few people about great faith. And every single one of these people that Jesus sees great faith in is a Gentile and usually a military leader. Interesting. And then Jesus speaks of mountain-moving faith in several instances. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be removed into the sea and it would happen. Now, what do you make of a saying like that? Surely mountain-moving faith would be, in terms of faith, more than little faith, more than great faith. It would be greater or greatest faith. Now, none of you want to move mountains. You don't want to move Pikes Peak from Colorado to Illinois or whatever. What we have is a picture there. What you want is strong faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and in triune God. And you can have that kind of faith. Hebrews 11 is driving you in that direction. God is real. And you put your hope in God, you've got a real hope in a real God. And not only that, because you've got a real God and real hope in him, you are convinced and convicted and persuaded that you can trust him. That's the import of verse 1, and repeated in verse 6. And then verse 6 adds that about, go to him earnestly. All of which is to say, you have a big God. God is bigger than anything else in your life, and you can trust your big God, even with the big problems of your life. That's how Jesus speaks of faith. Third question here. How are faith and works related? Many of you probably know Paul says we're saved by faith. And James says faith without works is dead. <laughs> well, saved by faith is a little bit of an oversimplification, isn't it? We're really saved by God, by God's grace in Jesus Christ, really by triune God. Father, provider of the Christ, Christ redeemer, Holy Spirit applying the work of the Christ and Father to us. 
We're saved by God's grace or goodness through faith. That's how we're saved. And faith becomes trust in that God who does the saving. Now, the question arises, how do works fit in? And that question has to be handled carefully because of the pension in human beings to think, I want to do good and save myself. I've actually talked to you about these things before. But the thing of it is, those who have true faith will have faith that shows in their godly works. Those who have true faith will also be faithful. And there's many other ways you can say the same. I told you once of my dad at age 90 talking about weaknesses in his past life. And I responded, I almost interrupted him, but you were faithful and that's what's most important. True faith shows in faithfulness. And what James is saying is that faithlessness not faithfulness, that faithlessness shows that there's something wrong with faith. The danger is that people will say they have faith, and all it is is word deep. And there's a lot of that out there, folks. You're going to have to deal with it. Most people will say, sure, I believe in God. Sure, I believe in Jesus. And of those who say it, in a lot of them, you won't see any evidence of faithfulness. Now, most of you were brought up, and I'm so glad you were, like my parents, to understand that true faith includes faithfulness. Salvation includes service. And I want to commend you to be faithful Christians. Your faithfulness doesn't save you. Your faith does, and really behind that, God's grace and goodness do, through your faith. And real faith shows itself in faithfulness. That's the answer to that question. Now, one more here. Oh, I want to deal with this. I don't know if I'm going to be talking to anyone in this church, but I, the rest of you put up with this a minute because there are such people around. If I have been abused too much to trust people, how can I trust God? Usually it's women who ask this, and usually they have been abused, and frequently it's sexual abuse when young. And they've learned that they can't trust people who they thought were trustworthy adults, and it becomes very hard then to trust God. I understand that situation a little bit, maybe half. I've never been a woman. I don't know what it's like to be a woman. I'm not saying that. But one of the most traumatic events in my own life was when I was young, a cousin, when we were playing, accused me of throwing sand at her. I didn't. It was her way of blaming someone when her mom didn't like it that she came home sandy. And... Even my mom didn't believe me that I didn't throw sand at her. And it became very hard for me at that point, if I couldn't trust my mother to believe me, to believe God. And so therefore, I struggle with trust issues too, and some of you do. But if there are any of you, especially women, 
who struggle really, really hard with trust issues, please accept my word this evening that God is not an abuser. God didn't abuse you. God loves you. God cares for you. God wants the best for you. And you can trust God more than you can trust the seat you're sitting on right now. Okay? And the rest of you, because I'm speaking to very few right now, the rest of you will meet people who are going to struggle with trust issues. Sympathize with them, but assure them that God is trustworthy. Now, a few more questions. If I have doubts, can I have true faith in spite of my doubts? The answer is yes, emphatically yes. We learn doubts with things like sitting on a seat. If you sat on your seat and there were a tack on it, one of my catechism kids tried to play that once on another one, a tack on it and you sat down and got hurt, you would doubt that you could sit on a seat without getting hurt again. You ought to doubt some of the things that you're told out there. In fact, I would doubt an awful lot I hear from some politicians, okay? Um, doubt is normal and natural. Doubt does not mean no faith. Doubt means weak faith. The opposite of true faith is disbelief, not doubts. And the way I explain this to people is on a scale of 1 to 10. 1, okay. 2, weak faith with doubts. 9 or 10, strong faith. Now, some of you have strong faith. You will never doubt. I praise God for you. But others of you aren't up there in the 9 to 10 category. You're much lower. And the man, remember the man in Mark 9 who came to Jesus and requested that his son be healed? And um, uh, Jesus says, I can do it. And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. He had doubts, but he had true faith. And he was one of those whose faith Jesus honored. What you need to do is trust God. And if your trust is weaker than you'd like it to be, well, I'd like your trust to grow stronger, and I hope it will over time. But your weaker trust is not the same thing as disbelief. Do you have that? You know, very important, very important. Not only that, but trauma in life can cause us to have faith that becomes more doubtful than it was before. One more question here. If I lack assurance of salvation, is there a way to become sure? I would say the simple answer is yes. But some explanation is needed. I, I was in a lengthy conversation with the president of Mid-America this week about that because of something he wrote about the canons of Dort and assurance. The, uh, the thing here is, okay, we have faith. Do we have assurance? There's a problem with that word assurance. And that's that assurance has become, in our language today, very much a feeling word. 
we say, I feel sure of this or that or the next thing. But your faith does not depend on your feelings. Your faith depends on your God. And so I don't like to speak of, yes, you can have assurance of salvation, though in a sense I want to affirm that. What I want to say to you is that, yes, you can have certainty of salvation. Not everybody has it, and with some it comes and goes. But you can have certainty because of who your God is, not because of your feelings. See the difference there? You can have certainty this bench will hold you up because whatever you weigh, it can hold you up. And you can have certainty in your God because of who God is. Now, that became a big issue in Reformation times. The Heidelberg Catechism actually tends in the direction of certainty, and it uses the phrase deep-rooted assurance. Okay, deep down, I guess you can have that assurance of certainty. I don't want to quibble language. But what I want you to see this evening is that your faith depends not on you, but that your faith depends on God. And we've pretty much covered most of the ten questions. One more briefly, is faith the same thing as positive thinking? No, (laughs) not quite. Positive thinking can be faith in faith instead of faith in God and We have some sayings and so that are more faith and faith and faith in God. The little engine that could, you know, chug, chug, chug up the mountainside. I'm the little engine that could and it made it to the top. There's no reference to God in that uh, at all. Um, What we're talking about this evening is faith in God, not faith in faith. But I want to leave you with this. With faith in God, you have every reason to leave this worship service filled with hope. And your faith in the God who really is real and gives you hope can lead you along convinced, confirmed, trusting him. You trust in his gift of Jesus Christ for your salvation. And day by day, you trust in that God to lead you along. That's true faith. Now let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, thank you for Hebrews 11 and also for the questions that we can address to the text here. I pray that we as your people may leave this church this evening with faith, understanding what faith is, having faith, rejoicing in our saving faith, and living the life of faith day by day in the week ahead. For Jesus' sake, amen.